Well, it is good to see you today. You look good. That's half the battle. I turned to Amanda a while ago. I said, I look good. That's all I need to know. And uh, I'm just kidding. So it's good to see you today. We are glad that you're here. And uh, hey, that lady that you've seen preaching a while ago, that second video, that is Priscilla Shire. And from what I understand, this Saturday, we're going to have our women's conference here at the church. And so if you're a lady in the house and you haven't signed up for our women's conference this Saturday, I'd encourage you to do so. Uh, You can go out in our lobby. I believe they've got a table set up and uh, sign up for that. It's going to be a good time next Saturday. And I guess us men will babysit for you, okay? So it'll be a good time. Hey, just want to say a special hello to all those who are watching online. And as as Pastor JP does every week to our uh, extended church family there in our correctional facility here in the county. Come on, can we just put our hands together and welcome all those who are watching with us online? It's so special that we do that, and we're glad that you're with us. Hey, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. If you don't, we're going to have it on the screen today. But... Well, we have been going through a series called Characters, where we are looking at the lives of people who have a significant, who play a significant part uh, in the scriptures and in our faith. Uh, Last week, Pastor JP kicked us off uh, looking at the life of Abraham and the faith of Abraham. That was a good message, amen? amen? Last week, if you didn't catch that, I'd encourage you to go back and catch it. But today, I want to go to the New Testament. New Testament's a little bit more fun to me. And I'll go to the New Testament, and I want to look at someone who plays a significant part in the writing of the New Testament. Okay, so if you care anything about the New Testament, and presumably we do, then we'll care about this guy. And today I want to talk about the Apostle Paul. Okay, the Apostle Paul, he wrote somewhere around two-thirds of the New Testament, so he matters a lot. Okay, and here's what I want to say. It's just kind of as a framework as we jump in today uh, into the message talking about Paul. And maybe just a little bit of connection with last week with Abraham. And here's what I want you to know. Is that Abraham's promise, okay, just if you'll you'll remember, last week, Pastor JP talked about how Abraham received a promise. Okay, he took his dentures out and he said, we're going to have a baby. You remember that? (laughs) I told Pastor JP he is a little too good at that. I'm just kidding. I didn't tell him that. But Abraham received a promise. And here's the promise he received. He received a promise that he was going to have a son, Isaac. And he had that son, but in many ways, the promise for Abraham was bigger than that, okay? And I want you to know this. The promise of God was bigger for Abraham. The promise of God for Abraham was this. God told Abraham, he said, look at the stars in the sky. Look at the sand on the seashore, Abraham. He said, so shall your descendants be. Okay, so shall your descendants be. And here's what God says specifically. He says, through you... All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How many of you know that's a big promise? That's a big promise. And so, of course, one son ain't going to cut it. One son ain't going to do the trick. This is a big promise that Abraham never received, never seen the fulfillment of. Okay, so here's what I want you to know. Again, it's just a framework for where we're going today, and I'll explain this later. Is that Abraham's promise, Abraham's promise was Paul's possession. Okay, Abraham's promise was Paul's possession. What Abraham could only imagine, what Abraham could only imagine, Paul spoke of. What Abraham could only dream of, Paul got to write of. And I want you to know that today, that the promise that Abraham received, Paul possessed. Now, there's a lot of different places that you could go to to look at the Apostle Paul. Obviously, the book of Acts 
um, tells the story of Paul and his conversion in Acts chapter 9, his missionary journeys, all that good stuff, getting thrown into prison, earthquakes, all that fun stuff. And just so you know, the New Testament is broken up into a few different parts, okay? So you start with the Gospels, okay? You probably already know this, but you start with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They tell the story of Jesus, Okay, and then you go to Acts, and it tells the story of the church. That's why Paul starts there, because he plays, again, a significant part in the church. And then when you get out of Acts, you have books like Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, all that good stuff. And these books are what we call epistles, okay? And they are letters mostly from church planters to churches, okay? They're letters, and one of the things that these church planners will do when they're writing to these churches, especially if they've never visited them before, is they will introduce themselves. Now, there's a, a few places in scriptures, if we're just being honest with ourselves, that when we read them, our just eyes kind of glaze over and we think to ourselves, all right, what's the point in this? Okay, one of those, for example, is the genealogies. You read so-and-so begot so-and-so and so-and-so begot so-and-so and so-and-so begot so-and-so and you can't pronounce the names and it's just a little difficult. okay. And we don't see the purpose. There is, of course, a purpose in that, but it's hard to see that sometimes. Another one of those, again, is the introductions. And so today I thought it'd be fun for us to go to the book of Romans and to look at Paul's introduction to the church at Rome, okay? And I want to do that for a couple of different reasons. First of all, the book of Romans is sort of like Paul's magnum opus, okay? It's his letter of letters. I don't know if he would have thought of it that way at the time, but it's, he lays out rich theological truth, okay? The, the church today is still arguing about and dividing over some of the things that Paul says in the book of Romans. They are hard to understand, okay? It's hard to understand. And by the way, that's just not me saying that. If you read the book of 1 Peter, okay, Peter, he says, actually at one point, he says, listen, Paul's writings, this is in the Bible, he says, Paul's writings, they're hard to understand, okay? So this has been, a, this has been an issue for a long time, Peter didn't understand it. We're still dealing with it today in 2021. And the reason I believe that the book of Romans is, is so deep theologically and stuff like that, we're not going to get into all that today, of course. But the reason it's so is because a couple of reasons. First of all, Paul, and I'm just going to teach for a minute. We're going to jump into some preaching in a second. But Paul is writing to a church that some people believe that he's never visited before. Okay, so he's introducing himself. That's one of the reasons we're going to look at this book and what Paul says, because Presumably, he'll say what he wants to say in this book about himself. But secondly, the church at Rome is obviously in an influential and central place in the world at that time, being, of course, Rome. And so I want to turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to have this on the screen. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and see what Paul says about himself. Okay? So here's what he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to jump right in. He says, Paul, and notice the first thing that he says about himself. He says, Paul, a, a servant of Christ Jesus, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, we're going to get past the first few words, but I just want to stop and say this, that it's significant that the first thing that Paul would say about himself is that, listen, I am a servant of Christ. Now, if you know anything about Paul, there's a lot of things that Paul could appeal to, especially when he's writing to a church that he's never visited, a church that's influential, a church that's central. He, he grew up a, a religious person. He was, he was very well educated. Arguably, he had, he had prominence, financial security, all of those good things. He rubbed shoulders with influencers. He knew people in that time. 
And so if Paul wanted to impress the crowd, if you will, and talk about all the things that makes him look good and why they ought to listen to him, Paul could have done so. But it's significant that the first thing that Paul says about himself is, listen, I am a servant of Christ. That's what I want you to know about me. I am a servant of Christ Jesus. I live my life in obedience to Jesus. In a world full of individuality, and this is who I am, and all that good stuff, it's important that we understand that Paul says, my identification first is with Christ. I am his. And here's the next thing he'll say. He'll say, I'm an apostle. Now, this establishes his authority to write to the church at Rome. Okay, this is a place of authority. We'll talk about that in just a second. It's a place of authority. When we were, of course, not me, but when, you know, theologians and great people in history were canonizing the New Testament, determining what books would be in the New Testament. They were looking for letters from apostles. So this is a place of authority. But listen to me, before Paul appeals to his authority, he first says, I am a man under authority. Before Paul says, listen, I am a man of authority, he first says, listen, I am a man under authority. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. So he says, number one, I'm a servant of Christ. Number two, I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle. So obviously in Jesus' ministry, Jesus had 12 apostles, okay? And before Jesus' crucifixion, one, Judas, betrayed him. And dealing with the guilt that was on his life, Judas um, took his own life. And so in Acts chapter 1, Pastor Kemp was talking a little bit about Acts chapter 1 this past Wednesday night. In Acts chapter 1, there's 11 disciples. Jesus is risen from the dead. He's in his glorified body, and he's about to ascend into heaven. As he does so, the 11 disciples, because we were absent one, are looking up into heaven. They're just like this. And an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, listen, what are you doing? He's going to return. Go do your thing. And here's what happened. Before you get into Acts chapter 2, before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the 11 disciples find it incumbent upon themselves to add the 12th disciple. So the church of Jesus Christ hangs in the balance, and here's what they do. They draw straws, okay? They draw sticks. Could you imagine, like, adding a pastor to Summit Church and just flipping a coin, heads or tails? Tails. Ah, you're in, you know what I mean? That'd be a little difficult to do. But that's what they do. They, they draw straws. Matthias draws a short stick, and he becomes a 12th apostle, and we never hear from him again. So some theologians, historians, believe that, that Paul was an, God's intended 12th apostle. Now, whether that's true or not, I, I don't know. I tend to agree with that. It's fun to talk about. Nevertheless, Paul appeals to the fact that he's a servant, number one. Number two, he's an apostle. And number three, in verse one, you can put that on the screen for me, guys. Romans chapter one, verse one. This is the most important. This is what we're going to talk about today. He says, I am set apart for the gospel of God. I'm set apart for the gospel of God. If you want to know anything about Paul, it's this, that Paul's life was marked by a commitment to the gospel. That Paul's life was marked by a commitment to the gospel. Now, I figured I wouldn't get a lot of amens about that because that's not too, you know, a, a, a huge point. It's not a big revelation, you know, because the tendency of us today, and this is, there's nothing wrong with this. This is true, but the tendency when we think of the gospel is this. We think, well, it's the basics. The gospel is just the basics. It's, it's the foundation. And there's truth to that, of course. But when you 
observe Paul's life, and I want you to hear this, when you observe Paul's life and you look at Paul's life and the way that he laid his life down for the gospel of Jesus, what we sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, take advantage of the fact that it's the basics or it's the foundation or it's the cornerstone on which church is built. When you look at the way that Paul laid his life down, this wasn't just the basics for Paul. It wasn't just the basics for Paul. Paul gave his life for this. He was in prison for the gospel. He was beaten for the gospel. He was shipwrecked, sick, and eventually he would give his life for the gospel of Jesus. Again, it's the basics. It's foundational. For Paul, it was his life. For Paul, it was his life. It was his every breath. He gave everything for it. And Paul and God set Paul apart for the gospel. I'll prove it to you in just a few verses. In Acts chapter 9, when Paul's pre-conversion, Paul's on the road to Damascus, and he is a, a religious person of the religious, and he's on his way actually to execute Christians in Acts chapter 9, and, and God throws him off his horse, and he, and he witnesses Jesus, and he's blinded by seeing him, and God calls a guy by the name of Ananias, okay, to go share the gospel with Paul, who's blind and has no idea what just happened to him. And of course, Ananias is reluctant to do so, And so here's what happens in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 through 16. Here's what God tells Ananias to get him to go to Paul and share the gospel with him. He says, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. There's the promise of Abraham. Before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer. And Paul did suffer. He suffered for the gospel how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So from the very beginning, Paul's life, again, was committed to the gospel. When you read these epistles, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, you come away with the fact that Paul, again, obsessed over the gospel. Not just the basics, not just the foundations, but his life. I mean, Romans chapter 1, verse, uh, chapter 1 through 11, Paul lays out beautifully the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you get to the book of 1 Corinthians, again, Paul could appeal to anything. And here's what he says to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. He says, for I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's big to say. That's really big to say. And he says, listen, I didn't come to you with any rich theological doctrinal truth. I didn't want to just impress you with my intellect and my skills, but I came to you laying out to you the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says in the church of, to the church at Philippi. He says, I count everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of just knowing Jesus. I mean, when's the last time we talked like that? I mean, I'm, I'm speaking to myself. When's the last time I talked like that? I count everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ and my Lord. He says, in whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And he did. If you ever question the authenticity of Christianity, this is a good place, this is a good thing to think about. Because Paul, he experienced something real in Acts chapter 9. He had nothing to gain and everything to lose as a result of, 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 of turning to Christianity. And he did so anyway. He gave his life. And he says, I count everything a loss compared to knowing him. And he says, I just want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which comes from the law, but that which comes through 
faith. Paul was committed to the gospel. That doesn't even talk about Galatians, where Paul fights for the gospel. If you like some drama, go to the book of Galatians. Paul just gets a little testy in the book of Galatians. In Colossians, where he exalts Christ, Paul's life was marked by commitment to the gospel. I love what a guy by the name of Timothy Keller says. He says, the gospel isn't the ABCs to Christianity. That's what we think of sometimes. The gospel isn't the ABCs to Christianity. It is the A to Z to Christianity. It is everything. It is our life. It is our breath. It is why we're here today. You sit here today delighting in the word of God, rejoicing in the faithfulness of God, not because we're good, not because we've got it together, not because you, you show up on Sunday mornings. You're here today because of what the gospel of God has done in your life. It's pure and simple. So there's not more than the gospel. Sometimes we just want to go deep. Take me deep, pastor. Take me deep. And there's nothing wrong with that, but there's not more than the gospel. You need to know there is just more of the gospel. There is more of the gospel. Today, I'm going to give you three ways, three ways if you're taking notes, and we'll jump into this, three ways that Paul's life was committed to the gospel. Three ways that Paul's life was committed to the gospel. Here's the first one, is that Paul was committed to the advancement of the gospel. Paul was committed to the advancement of the gospel. I want to turn again to Romans chapter 1, if you don't mind throwing that up there. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to get to verse 5, but I don't read it from the start. He says, Paul, a servant, and then he says, I'm an apostle, and I'm set apart for the gospel. Verse 2 which he promised, there's Abraham's promise, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, verse 3, concerning Jesus. So the gospel is about Jesus. Concerning Jesus, verse 4, who was declared to be the Son of God, and he was raised from the dead through his resurrection, that's verse 4. And then in verse 5, here's what he says. Through whom, talking about Jesus, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, and catch this, among all nations, among all nations. So Paul seen his purpose as an apostle, as a result of receiving grace from God, he seen his purpose as this, reaching the nations. Reaching the nations. He wanted to advance the gospel to the nations. And he did just that. He was a church planner. He was a missionary. He brought the gospel to the nations. Of course, Romans chapter 1 verse 5 has some resemblance to the Great Commission. When Jesus says this, he says in verse 18 of Matthew 28, he says, all authority, all authority. You just need to hear that today, that all authority, Jesus said. Not just spiritual authority, not just the little authority in your life, but God says, listen, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me has been given to me. Listen, I'm convinced that when the church of Jesus Christ grasps the authority of God, man, your perspective begins to change. Your perspective begins to change when you grasp the authority of God. That not just some authority does Jesus have, but he says all authority has been given to me. Listen to me. Not just in heaven. We're good with Jesus having authority in heaven. When I grew up, we used to sing, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. We used to sing, well, I walk the streets of gold and all that good stuff. And that's fun. I can't wait to get to heaven. Let me just tell you, I can't wait to be there. 
But man, I think that we need an understanding, a revelation of the fact that Jesus says the same authority I have in heaven is the same authority I have on the earth. It's the same authority I have on the earth. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And here's what he says in the Great Commission. He says, therefore, go. Therefore, go. Now, let me just suggest to you that if you just go, you're disobeying. I'm being a little, you know, facetious. But if you just say go, then you're disobeying. Because the command of Christ was to therefore go. The command of Christ isn't to go. The command of Christ is to therefore go. And that means something. That's important because what Jesus is saying, he says, I want you to go in the authority that I have. I want you to live on mission and advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, advance the kingdom of God, not just so that you can see victory, but because you already have victory. I want you to advance the kingdom of God by walking in the authority of all authority, the all-encompassing authority that I have in heaven and on earth. That means this, that the, that the advancement of the kingdom of God, here's what it looks like. It looks like the people of God going into the world and declaring from the rooftops, there is a new king. There is a new king. There's a new king. We go to the addict and we declare there's a new king. We go to those dealing with guilt and shame and we declare there is a new king. We go to broken relationships and we declare there is a new king. There's a new king. Satan doesn't reign. Addictions don't reign. Broken relationships don't reign. Guilt and shame, they do not reign. Sin doesn't reign. King Jesus reigns in our world. He reigns in our world. I believe in, I just, this is a little off my notes, but let me just say, I think if we're going to see awakening in this country, and I believe and I'm praying hard for it, man. I think if we're going to see awakening in our country, it's going to come start with the church of Jesus Christ understanding the lordship of Jesus Christ and the all-encompassing authority that Jesus Christ has in this world. Joe Biden can give any, any, you know, lay down any rule that he wants to lay down, Jesus is king. Tyrants aren't king. Tyrants aren't king. It's the same thing with Christians in Afghanistan, Christians in China, Jesus is king. When government oversteps their bounds, we declare from the rooftops, there is no king but Jesus. There's no king but Jesus. Y'all didn't think we were going to get political today, did you? That's not political. It's just the truth. There's no king but Jesus. He says, so therefore go and make disciples of what? All nations. All nations. I got to hurry. All nations. All nations, he says. So here's what I want to ask you today. Is your vision for what God wants to do in our world big enough to include all nations? Is your vision big enough for this world that includes all nations? So I got news for you today. The, the mission of God for us, the mission of God for you is not a fire rescue plan. It's not, let's just get as many people out as hell as we can. Come on. That isn't the plan. That isn't the mission. The mission is this, disciple the nations. The mission is disciple the nations. The mission of God for you, for me, for Summit Church is not to retreat in fear, but to advance in faith. To advance in faith. So today I want to give you two ways that we can be kingdom advancers. Two ways that we are kingdom advancers. There's a lot 
of ways that we're kingdom advancers, but two ways that I think that are relevant to us. Number one is we stand on the word of God. We stand on the word of God. We stop standing on what we see on Facebook. Did you see what so-and-so put on Facebook? Did you see what was on Fox News, Tucker Carlson talked about the other night? We stop, listen, and, and, and there's good in that. But let me tell you something. We stand on the word of God. We don't let our faith be determined by what we see in the world. We let our faith be determined by what we see in the word. What we see in the word. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something. I'm being honest when I tell you this. When you set your heart's affection and your mind's attention on the word of God, your perspective changes. You cannot, you, you cannot be pessimistic for what God is doing in our world when this is your attention and this is your heart's affection. You can't do it. You read the book of Psalms where it says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You read Jesus when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You read the book of Psalms where he says, he shall have dominion from sea to sea. That he will establish justice on the earth. The book of Isaiah says he will establish justice on the earth and the coastlands await his law. I'm going to tell you something. God isn't done with our world because our faith is determined by God's word, not by what we see in the world. Not what we see in the world. Paul was a kingdom advancer because he stood on the word of God. Number two is we remain faithful. Just remain faithful. Isn't a big, you know, huge word, but I think it's so important for us today. So many times we wait for a few men to become famous and lead us into awakening. And we've had men like that. We've had people like Billy Graham and even people like who've, who've, we've saw justice in our world and Martin Luther King Jr. We've had great men. And I'm thankful for those men, and obviously, and, and the impact that they've had in our world. But I'm just convinced that the kingdom of God is advanced mostly not through a few men becoming famous, but through a lot of men being faithful. Through a lot of men being faithful. That's what Jesus says. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's just like a mustard seed. I thought about this verse this week in Jeremiah chapter 29, the people of God, they're in exile and, um, and, and they've received these promises from God. They received all these good things from God. They expect good things from God, but yet they found themselves in exile. You don't know Jeremiah 29 because it's where we get the famous verse of Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, all that good stuff. But before that, in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, Presumably, the people of God are kind of dealing with some, they're downcast, they're worried. And here's what God says to them in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what he says here. This is not, this is significant. He says this. He says, build houses and live in them. No, 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 no. No, no, I need you to give me influence in our world so I can just go preach to thousands. But he says, no, I want you to build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Here's what he says, multiply there. That sounds like the creation mandate, to multiply and subdue the earth. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Do not decrease. Can I encourage you today? Don't decrease. Don't, don't cower in fear as the world seems to be going down a, you know, a crazy path. No, we don't decrease the people of God. We increase. We engage in our world. 
We don't decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. In its welfare, you will find your welfare. In its prosperity, you will find your prosperity. Come on, I just believe that our call today, it isn't fancy. We're not going to get a lot of amens and hallelujahs. But man, I just want some at church, more than anything, we're just going to remain faithful. Remain faithful to what God has given me to do. Listen. I'm not no Billy Graham, but I've got a family. You're not no Martin Luther King Jr., but you've got a world in which you encompass that God has given you influence that you can reach. We do what God has put in our hands to do, and that's how the kingdom of God is advanced. Amen? You receive that? So first of all, we, Paul was committed to the advancement of the gospel. Number two, was, Paul was committed to the truth of the gospel. He was committed to the truth of the gospel. And that's what he lays out in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, I, I won't go there for time's sake, but so we, we are hopeful. I want us to be hopeful people. Paul was hopeful. He wanted to see the nations reached. Jesus was hopeful. He wanted to see the nations reached. And we want to see the nations reached. We're hopeful, but we're still realists, right? We see what's going on in our world and we think, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. And what is happening in our world, we do. We, we live in a confused society. Absolutely confused. We we don't know what male and female is. We, we don't know what marriage is. And it, we, it's fun to talk about all those things, and we need to have those conversations. But the heart of the problem is this. The heart of the problem is that we don't know what truth is. Our society doesn't know what truth is. And the Bible says that there is nothing new under the sun. And so this is not, this is not some new problem. This is an old problem. We don't know what truth is. You know, we, live, we used to live in a modern age where everything had to be proven scientifically. You had, you know, if I can't touch, feel, hear, or see it, then I don't believe it. And so atheism and agnosticism began to rise. I remember, I'm 29, I remember being in high school and just being, just all this atheist material, atheistic and just being thrown at me. I remember sitting in church and having friends and you had these prominent atheists. You, I mean, I could go through names. I know them. I mean, they, they wrote books and documentaries. And this is what our generations are being hit with, is this nonsense. And that's what it is. It's nonsense. The Bible says, a fool says in his heart that there is no God. And so we have no basis. It's, it's, it was atheist. It's agnostic. We don't believe it. There is no God. I don't know if there's a God. And what we've come to figure out in 2021 is, uh-oh, well, there's consequences to turning our back on God. This is what happens when we turn our back on God. There's no moral foundation. There's no way for us to count for morality and ethics. And so what happens? We see the demise of society. I was listening to a guy, speaking of those documentaries and books, I was just listening to a guy the other day who has a show, and he, was, he, he would not agree with anybody in this room. I'm just going just gonna to tell you, especially politically, but even um, theologically and spiritual things. And and he was talking about our society. He, he's an atheist. And he was talking about our society and all this stuff and, and just going downhill. And I remember thinking, are you kidding me? I mean, you, you, you spent years, you spent years convincing people there is no God. And you're surprised that we live like there is no God. And so we used to have a modern age, but now we have a postmodern age. And it's just taking atheism to its logical conclusions. If there is no God, then there is no truth. And that's true, by the way. If there is no God, then there is no truth. And it has societal impacts when a generation believes that there is no truth. There are societal impacts to that. 
The 2016, the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year was this, post-truth. Give me a break. Post-truth. That, that, let me just tell you something. That ought to be our attitude towards that. The church of God needs a defense to it. We need a defense to this, I'm just going to use this word, demonic philosophy. It's what it is. It's leading generations astray. It's post-truth. They're playing on words. It's post-modernism truth. That means truth is not determined by some outside objective standard, external objective standard. It's not determined by God or his word. It's determined by how I feel. And it's your truth and my truth. And I'm just going to tell you, if we're going to believe in the basics of the gospel and the foundational truth of the gospel, we must affirm with everything in us that there is not such thing as a truth or your truth or my truth. There is a such thing as the truth. The truth. Listen to what Paul says to his young protege in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-4. through 4. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, he said, preach the word. That's not a hard command. Preach the word. Stand on the word. Preach the word, Summit Church. Stand on the word of God. I lost my place. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Listen to this now. With complete patience, okay? So let me add that in as a caveat, with complete patience. So everybody loves the rebuke part. I'm going to rebuke some people. I've, I've, I've dealt with some of those people here recently. No, I'm joking. But we love, we love to get our theological truths and say, you don't believe what I believe. And we love to face our world and say, these crazy people. But Paul says, listen, do all those things, but make sure you do it with complete patience. Complete patience. Listen, if Peter couldn't understand it, listen, the person you're talking to is going to have a hard time too, okay? These are hard things to grasp. These are hard things to understand. And so we, I'm I'm preaching to the choir. This is the most gracious church I've ever been a part of. But let me just say something. We do so with complete patience. We're not the religious crowd We're full of grace. People come here with grace and mercy. Nevertheless, we stand on truth. He says, be ready in season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own. And here's the the, the word of the day, to suit their own passions, suit their own feelings. And they will turn away from listening to what? The truth. The truth. And wander off into mists. Come on, in, in, in 2021, where there is so much confusion in our world, we, with complete patience and grace, mercy and kindness, exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, we need, as a church, to be a beacon of hope for our world and say, this is where you can come to find light. This is where you can come to find truth. This is where you can come to find the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask Amanda to come and turn my third point here. So Paul was committed to the advancement of the gospel. Number two, he's committed to the truth of the gospel. And those things are great. I want us to advance the gospel. I want us to believe in the truth of the gospel. But if you miss this last point, you miss everything. Miss this last point, you miss everything. Here's what he says. Paul was committed to the power of the gospel. Here's what he says in Romans 1.16. He says, 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the power of God. That word power in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, is where we get the word deutimus, okay? And um, it's where we get the word dynamite. What Paul is saying is the gospel of God, it is the dynamite of God. It is the dunamis of God. It is the power of God unto salvation. Listen, there's a lot of things that you could say about Paul. Paul was a servant of Christ Jesus. He was an apostle. He was an intellect. He, was a, 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 he wrote two-thirds of our New Testament. He was a religious of the religious. He was a great man. He was a faithful man. All of those things are true. But maybe here's the most important thing that Paul says about himself. And the most, maybe let me say it like this, the most relatable thing that Paul says about himself is that Paul says that I'm a sinner. And I'm a sinner. Now again, to his young protege in the faith, Timothy, he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. He says, I thank Jesus who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. He says, listen, man, I was a sinner. I was broken, and I could not get it together. He says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he says this. I want to encourage you. When I was, when I was 19 years old, I've, I've been raised in church I went on Sundays. Here's what Sundays look like in Amor, Mississippi, okay? We had 10 a.m. Sunday school. Actually, we had 8.30 choir practice, 10 a.m. Sunday school, 11 a.m. worship, 3.30 practice, 4.30 prayer, 5 o'clock service again. Come on, somebody. We didn't get a day off in Mississippi. And I played basketball growing up, and I wasn't that good, but I played basketball growing up. And if there was revival in town, you better not even... Think about that basketball game. Let me tell you, Daddy was taking you, Daddy, by the way. Daddy was taking you to revival services. And at 19 years old, I'm just, this is kind of give you a, a glimpse into my, my testimony. At 19 years old, I remember being at a church in Missouri, and I heard a message of the grace of Jesus Christ that felt like the first time. I mean, it just felt like the first time. And I, I remember thinking, I remember thinking, and listen, I, you know, I'm not, this is, I don't want to put this on that church that I raised up. They're good people. But I remember thinking, where has this message been? I remember, I, I've been raised in church. I've been to revival services, Wednesday night church, youth camp, all this good stuff. And for the first time, I'm hearing about the grace of Jesus. And I remember that day, I just, I kind of made a decision in my heart that I'm never going to take for granted that just because someone's been raised in church and just because they can quote a few Bible verses and just because they're part of a small group, that they really understand the grace of God. It took me 19 years to finally just a light bulb to go off and I got it. And it was just like a breath of fresh air to me to understand the power of God. And so I want you to hear this. Even, even if you've been raised in church your whole life, I got, I'm going to preach for like three more minutes. But I want you to hear this just with fresh ears today. I want to encourage you. Even if you know it and you get it, just listen to what Paul says. He said, this saying is trustworthy. 
and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To save sinners. Save sinners. That's why the Pharisees could never understand it. They could never get it. Because Jesus said, listen, I didn't come for those who are well. I came for those who are sick. And Jesus tells a story. Jesus tells a story where a Pharisee prays and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like most men. I do all these things. I fast. I pray. Thank you that I'm not like most men. And then a tax collector prays. A thief And he can't even lift his head up to heaven. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that is the man who went away justified. That's the man who went away justified. I may make some of you uncomfortable, but I just want to say this. There's only one qualification for salvation. There's only one qualification for salvation. It isn't how good you are. It isn't how well you behave. There's only one qualification, and it's that I'm a sinner. There's a reason Paul understood this. There's a reason that Paul got this, because he was well aware that he did not deserve the grace of God. He didn't deserve the grace of God. There's a song that we used to sing growing up in my church. It said, grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that can pardon and cleanse within Grace, grace, God's grace. I want you to know today that God's grace is real. It's not just words on a page. It's not just something we sing about. But it's the power of God. Paul understood it. Paul understood. It wasn't my good works that got me here. It wasn't my intellect that got me here. It wasn't how good I looked that got me here. It was God's grace. And when I stand before God one day, Let me just give you, I'm going to give you a hint what you need to say when you stand before God one day. I have no other argument, and I need no other pill. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. He died for me. It's the power of God. Can we bow our heads and close our eyes today? You know, I believe that the power of God is even in here at this moment. And I want to encourage you today that, you know, it's not about saying a prayer. It's not about lifting a hand. We don't even have to do that. It, the power of God is equivalent to the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is here. And some of you may be even feeling on your heart right now that just, man, something's changing. Something's changing in me. I don't get it. I can't understand it. And I think that's the best, when you just can't understand it. It's not that you get the gospel, but the gospel has got you. Something's changing. In the, in the theological world, we call this regeneration. And what it means is that the Spirit of God is just touching you right now. And He's moving on you. And just right now, even in this moment, I want to encourage you, if that's you, you can just say in your own heart, this is not about, again, lifting a hand. This is about you and God. And just say, Lord, I give you my life. I give you my heart. I repent of the way that I've been living. God, I'm sorry for trying to do this on my own. 
today I want to give my life to you. Holy Spirit, would you lead me? Holy Spirit, would you guide me? And Lord, if you leave me, I can't be faithful, but God, I know that you'll be faithful to me. In Jesus' name we pray. Come on, everybody said. We just give Jesus a praise. Amen.